Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be with you for the next 45 minutes as we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. But first, I've got to talk about mandatory vaccination issues. I know I've let off the podcast for the last month or two uh, with conversations about vaccination, but things are coming to a head right now. There are a number of mandatory vaccination programs that have already come into effect. There are many, many more that are slated to become operational in mid-September. Uh, many more after that in October or sometime in at the start of October or sometime in the middle of October. And I can't begin to tell you how much of a swirl of bad legal information I'm hearing out there about the legality of a mandatory vaccination program. I just saw a letter about three days ago. It's a letter from an attorney in Oregon who will remain nameless, uh, who concluded his letter. Uh, and this letter was to the membership of a labor organization. Concluded his letter by saying that a mandatory vaccination program violates the United States Constitution, the Oregon Constitution, and Oregon law. All three of those things are wrong. And yet, that attorney's advice is going to influence labor organizations in terms of what they do or don't do with respect to a mandatory vaccination program. More importantly, it will influence individual employees in making decisions about their career and whether or not there's a good legal theory out there under which they could potentially get their job back if it were successful in court. And even more importantly, it's going to influence some people making decisions about their lives. We need accurate information out there. I trust in public safety employees. I trust in police and fire and corrections officers. If they have the right data, if they have the right explanation for what the law is, they'll make the right decisions. And right now, there's too much noise out there. So let me go over mandatory vaccination 101 for you in the hopes that this information will prove valuable to you. And let's start with the big question. Does a mandatory vaccination program violate the federal constitution? And you've heard the arguments, right? Uh, I have a right to uh, bodily integrity that is protected uh, under somewhere in the Constitution. There's a due process protection against mandatory vaccination programs. This violates my right to privacy. All of that is wrong. In 1905, 116 years ago, the United States Supreme Court upheld a mandatory vaccination program that is much more intrusive, much more serious than the ones that are being talked about right now in public sector employment. The case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, 
the mandatory vaccination program? The state of Massachusetts compelled all adults to become vaccinated. If they did not, they could be convicted of a crime that would result in the payment of fines. And presumably, although it's not said in the case, presumably, if you couldn't pay the fine, particularly back in 1905, you'd do the time. You'd end up in jail. There were no exemptions in the Massachusetts policy for people with bona fide religious beliefs or people with disabilities. Everybody who was an adult had to be vaccinated. And the Supreme Court said that is constitutional. That does not violate the due process rights or any other personally held constitutional rights of citizens. Why? Because a function of government, the Supreme Court held, is the protection of public health. And so long as governmental bodies are making good faith, reasonable decisions about how to protect public health, we, the courts, are not going to interfere with those decisions. Now, Jacobson was decided in 1905, 116 years ago. What has happened since then with respect to the constitutionality of mandatory vaccination programs? Well, mandatory vaccination has been upheld all over the country. Think about the programs through which we eradicated smallpox that was the disease uh, that was at issue in Jacobson, and polio. Think of your kids. Uh, think of when you were in school. Did you have to meet vaccination requirements? There have been court challenges around all of those sorts of requirements for many, many years, and they have consistently lost. I prepared a response to that Oregon lawyer. I don't do that very often, but uh, the misinformation just ran so deep in what he wrote. I prepared a response, and in doing so, I looked up Oregon's cases on mandatory vaccination. There's even a case from the Oregon Supreme Court uh, where children were ordered to be vaccinated over the objections of their parents, and the courts upheld that order. Now, you may disagree with the degree of power that the state has in the area of public health. You may well have a personal philosophy that a mandatory vaccination program shouldn't be constitutional, that it infringes on our liberty, liberties, that it is too much of an intrusion of government into our private lives. But what you can't disagree with is what the law says about those programs. And the federal constitution is not violated by a mandatory vaccination program. Secondly, what about the fact that the vaccines have, until the last week, the vaccines have been only authorized under a emergency use authorization issued by the Food and Drug Administration. And there's a statute. The FDA has a, is governed by a whole lot of statutes, as you might imagine. Uh, and there's a statute, a series of statutes, about 
what can and can't be done and must be done uh, under a medical product that is only authorized under an emergency use authorization. And one of those statutes requires that the manufacturers of medical products, and a vaccine is a medical product, uh, must make sure that recipients understand the potential benefits and risks of use of the vaccination and, quote, the option to accept or refuse administration of a product authorized in such an emergency. Well, we've had a series of lawyers. Uh, they're well-funded by some anti-vaccination groups who have filed lawsuits under these statutes and said, and what the lawsuits say is, uh, those provisions in the FDA statutes, they mean what they say, that all of us have the option to accept or refuse administration of a vaccine. And so far, every one of those lawsuits has failed. Courts have said that what those statutes control is the information that the distributor, the manufacturer of a product authorized under a EUA must give out. That's the information that they must give out. They do not, say the courts, bar an employer from imposing a mandatory vaccination requirements. And the most poignant case uh, is one called Bridges versus Houston Methodist Hospital. We'll post a link to it in the show notes for this podcast. And in this case, you had 117 employees of a hospital who sued, challenging a mandatory vaccination program, and they cited the FDA statutes. What did the court say? Uh, you know what? It's voluntary whether or not you can take the vaccination. You, everybody in the country has the right to refuse a vaccination under the emergency use authorization. But what you don't have is the right to hold that job and refuse a vaccination. You can go get a job somewhere else. Those statutes do not prevent an employer from imposing on employees a mandatory vaccination rule. And we just uh, had a, a, another case that came up. It's not a an employment case, but I think it's very telling. Uh, it's a case that involved Indiana University, that it's a public university, and it mandated that all of its students uh, have uh, the COVID vaccination, subject to religious and medical exemptions. Uh, the students sued, uh, and the, the case resulted in an opinion, a long opinion, over 100 pages long from a trial court judge. Uh, we'll post the uh, decision in the show notes. And then a much pithier opinion from the Federal Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, it was only about seven pages long. And if you know something about the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, it can say in seven pages what another judge would take 105 pages to say. But the judges all agreed, the trial court and the appellate court, that there is nothing unconstitutional or illegal about Indiana University requiring tens of thousands of students to be vaccinated. And the court said, the courts said the same thing 
uh, that the Houston court said. You don't have to take a vaccine. You just have to go to school somewhere else if you're not going to take a vaccine. Uh, the students, there were a group of, I think it was seven of them who sued in the case. Uh, they applied for an emergency stay of the Seventh Circuit's decision. Uh, and emergency stays can be given out by individual Supreme Court justices. Uh, the justices divide up the country uh, and so all of the requests for a stay coming out of Indiana, in this case, go to Justice Barrett. Uh, she quickly, uh, and within a matter of days, if not less than a day, uh, denied the request for the stay. So the emergency use authorization statutes do not provide a basis to challenge a mandatory vaccination program. And, you know, as a practical point, that's going to be very quickly a moot argument anyway. The Pfizer vaccine is no longer under an emergency use authorization. That happened last week. It is anticipated that Moderna will move into permanent authorization either this week or early next week. Johnson & Johnson seems to be somewhat behind the others, uh, but it, it, we are clearly moving to the point where the emergency use authorization argument, to the extent it had any legal merit, which it didn't, uh, the emergency use authorization argument will be moved. Okay, what about the EEOC? Uh, aren't there some equal employment rights that are violated um, by a mandatory vaccination program? No. And I'm going to quote for you uh, from a publication uh, of the EEOC. We'll post it in the show notes. It's called What You Should Know About COVID-19 and the ADA, the Rehabilitation Act, and Other Equal Employment Opportunity Laws. Quote, the federal EEO laws do not prevent an employer from requiring all employees physically entering the workplace to be vaccinated for COVID-19, subject to the reasonable accommodation provisions of Title VII and the ADA and other EEO considerations. So unless you're falling within Title VII or the ADA, and I'll get to those, I promise you, uh, what the EEOC is telling us is there is nothing in the equal employment laws that prohibits a mandatory vaccination program. So what are the exemptions that have to be granted under Title VII and the ADA? Well, Title VII, the exemption, well, first of all, Title VII is uh, our basic federal civil rights law. It prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, national origin, religion, and the like. Well, uh, uh, Title VII requires an employer to reasonably accommodate the bona fide religious beliefs of an employee. So that means that under Title VII, uh, if you have an employee who can't take a vaccine because of their bona fide religious beliefs, then the employer has to reasonably accommodate that belief. I'll come back to what reasonable accommodation means in just a moment. So what religions qualify? There's not many 
uh, it, it appears right now as nearly as I can tell and and hopefully someone will email me if I've got this wrong but I've tried looking pretty hard into this it appears that only Jehovah's Witnesses and some fundamentalist uh, sects groups within Islam and Judaism may qualify for uh, the religious exemption you can have strongly held personal a religious beliefs or as I've seen it in a recent policy non-theistic beliefs but the employee will have the burden of proving that those aren't merely expedient beliefs they will have the burden of proving that those beliefs have been long held in good faith and have caused them to act in accordance with their beliefs in the past so you can just imagine how the individually held beliefs cases are going to be litigated, right? The employee who thinks they are entitled to an exemption will testify as to what their beliefs are. And then the employer that's defending the case will begin cross-examination by saying, roll up your sleeve. I want to see if you've been vaccinated for smallpox or tetanus or any other vaccine. And why didn't your religious beliefs get in the way when you were vaccinated then? These are going, religious, the uh, non-theistic religious beliefs are going to be hard to establish. Not impossible, but they're going to be hard to establish. And if somebody qualifies under, the, under Title VII for a religious exemption, a theistic exemption or a non-theistic exemption, uh, then the employer will have to reasonably accommodate them. Same thing with the Americans with Disabilities Act. If you have a medical condition that is inconsistent with taking the vaccine, and there's not a lot of them, but there are some, then the employer has to reasonably accommodate the individual's disability. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the employee will still have a job? Well, uh, that's not at all clear. Uh, the reasonable accommodation uh, system that exists under both the ADA and Title VII requires a good faith interactive process between the employer and the employee to find accommodations for the employee's condition, religion or medical condition, uh, that the employer can use without and I'm quoting from the statute, undue hardship. Uh, and th this interactive process may result in the employee trying to, or the employer trying to identify uh, particular jobs where you would not have to be vaccinated, where you could be reasonably accommodated, different working conditions, perhaps, for example, assignment to a different shift, uh, and, and and that reasonable accommodation process ends with the employer if it can offer a reasonable accommodation at all without an undue hardship with the employer offering the employee basically a menu of different accommodations. You know, do you want this job or do you want uh, these working conditions or whatever it might be? And then the employee can select from what the employer has offered. 
but that may not provide the refuge that some employees are looking for because we got a case on that too and it's from the federal fifth circuit court of appeals it's a 2020 case it involves a firefighter by the name of horvath who worked for the city of leander he objected to mandatory vaccination for tetanus diphtheria and pertussis on religious grounds uh, he and the city got together and the city said look we've got two jobs you can have where we can reasonably accommodate you uh, without a vaccine. One, we can transfer you to a code enforcement uh, position uh, and you won't have to be vaccinated. And you will have to give up your 24 on 48 off shift uh, and you'll have to work a 5-8 shift and there will be no overtime in the court, uh, the code enforcement position uh, but you can do that without being vaccinated or you can work the line provided you wear a respirator at all times. The firefighter said, no, I don't want either of those accommodations. I want to work on the line without a respirator when I am unvaccinated. And the firefighter was fired for uh, being unable to meet the essential requirements of the job. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld his termination. The court said either of the employer's accommodations here were reasonable. Yeah, we understand he, he might have had to have given up a shift and he might have lost out on overtime, but that doesn't make the accommodation unreasonable. And in the end, the employer decides what reasonable accommodations are going to be available to the employee. The employee doesn't decide that. And as long as the employer goes through the good faith interactive process, the employer can choose the accommodation. And we're not going to let employees design their own jobs. That's not going to be part of uh, the EEOC. Uh, and here, here's a, a couple of sentences from the court's opinion that I think are really telling. While Horvath and other firefighters may prefer the hours and duties of traditional firefighting jobs, Title VII doesn't restrict an employer to only those means of accommodation that are preferred by the employee. Horvath's reduction in his income due to loss of an outside job doesn't render the accommodation unreasonable. All right, so now we've covered the constitutionality of a mandatory vaccination program. We've covered the emergency use authorization statutes, and we talked about the exemptions. Let's talk about some other issues. Uh, first of all, unions have a right to bargain about mandatory vaccination programs. Uh, there's uh, one big decision on the issue that came to us from California's Public Employment Relations Board in uh, July 2021 uh, that, where the, uh, the Employment Relations Board ended up saying, yeah, uh, unions have a right to bargain. They don't have a right to bargain the decision as to whether or not to have a mandatory vaccination program, but they do have the right to bargain the effects of the decision. Uh, and what sort of effects might a union want to bargain? 
when the uh, requirement would go into effect, what date. Uh, it's kind of an open question, does whether the union has the right to bargain what happens if the employee comes into noncompliance. Are they discharged? Are they, uh, or are there alternatives? You may have seen Delta Airlines came up with a wonderfully creative alternative, I think, which is to say if you're unvaccinated, you have to wear a mask every minute you're on the job. Uh, you also have to get tested weekly. It's on your own time. It's on your own dime getting tested. And after a couple of months, you're going to have to pay uh, an additional co-payment for health insurance, a couple hundred dollars a month you're going to have to pay because, of course, if you're unvaccinated, statistically, we're much more likely to incur medical costs uh, for you than we are somebody who is vaccinated. So that might be an alternative to discharge that a union would want to bargain about. Uh, a layoff for the employee, a non-disciplinary layoff, or a leave of absence might be a possibility. Just yesterday, I saw a mandatory vaccination program where the carrot, if you will, was this. The employer said, if you're vaccinated employees and you come down with COVID, uh, your time away from work will be leave with pay uh, and you won't have to draw down on any of your leave accounts. And if you're unvaccinated and you come down with COVID, you're not eligible for that pay. So there, I mean, there are different alternatives that are out there that could be negotiated. It is still an open question whether or not the decision to have a mandatory vaccination program allows the negotiation of those alternatives. I know uh, unions and employers are all out there bargaining about these things, uh, and that may well be the way that we see labor boards go. In fact, I think that's probably the likeliest scenario. But I do want you to know the law isn't absolutely clear on that. What else can you bargain about? You can bargain about, for example, the scope of the uh, religious and medical exemptions. Uh, and uh, remember, you can't go below what is provided in Title VII and the ADA, but you could uh, bargain for broader exemptions. You could bargain for training programs for employees, uh, good training programs in uh, what the vaccinations do and don't do and the risks of being vaccinated and the risks of being unvaccinated uh, and the like. Uh, you could bargain for that sort of thing. You could bargain for a progressive discipline system uh, that could be used. Now, there's a lot of different things that could be negotiated. And uh, negotiations about these programs are going on all over the country right now. Uh, when does the employer have to negotiate? That isn't quite as clear. Many public sector labor laws have a provision that in an emergency where an employer has to engage in effects bargaining, that the employer can go ahead and implement its decision and then bargain the effects afterwards. Uh, in some other states, that is the rule as, uh, as a product of case law rather than the underlying bargaining statute itself. In yet other states, you have to bargain effects before the employer can implement. So you need to check with your lawyers to see which model your state follows with respect to when effects bargaining occurs. 
So, and, and as we start to uh, move into September, uh, we are going to see, I think, negotiated agreements that are signed off by unions, and they'll give us a pretty good feel for what the trends are, and we'll try to keep you posted with those on our mailing list. All right, only a couple more issues that I want to talk about about the vaccine. Uh, let's say you have an employer who doesn't qualify for an exemption but decides they're not going to get vaccinated and they're fired. Will they get unemployment benefits? And uh, the, as you can imagine, the blogs, the labor law blogs, are heated up over this issue. Uh, and the mild consensus, and when I say mild consensus, I mean maybe 51% of the people who are opining on this issue are answering that question, no, they're not going to get unemployment benefits. So what's up with that? Normally, if you're fired under unemployment compensation laws, and they vary from state to state, but normally if you're fired, uh, you're entitled to unemployment compensation, uh, even if you were fired for just cause, with the exception and I think every state has an exception like this, with the exception that if you were fired for misconduct, you do not get unemployment compensation. Misconduct doesn't mean simply that you fail to follow the employer's rule. It's, it's a very heightened degree of impropriety on the part of the employee. And it's rare to find in a misconduct case where a court will uphold the denial of unemployment compensation benefits. It's not, uh, com you know, it's not one in a million, but they're comparatively rare cases. One form of misconduct in many states is insubordination. And if, in fact, you have an employee who is fired for refusing to comply with the employer's order to be vaccinated, that could be construed to be insubordination. So those on the side of, uh, those in the legal blogs on the side of, you're not going to get unemployment compensation are saying, these are likely to be misconduct cases and that's why employees won't get unemployment comp. Those on the other side are saying, no, th this is very different than uh, when a supervisor gives you a direct order. You just simply look at them and say, go shove it. And, or what was the old country music song? Take this job and shove it and you get fired. This, this is different, refusing to comply with uh, mandatory vaccine uh, order, and in particular, the employee's mental state is very different. Uh, so this is not misconduct. By the way, I side with that argument as opposed to the uh, this is misconduct argument. We'll, we'll just have to see. There are some unemployment uh, compensation state agencies that are weighing in on the issue. For example, my home state of Oregon, the employment division, announced that individuals who were fired for refusing vaccines can't get unemployment compensation. Uh, so you, you want to make sure your lawyers are checking in on that as well. And then the, the last issue that I wanted to talk about is the question of whether 
workers' compensation benefits would be available for employees who come down with side effects from the vaccine. Uh, and there seems to be a general assumption that the answer to that question is yes. Like the unemployment compensation question, the workers' comp question hasn't been addressed by many courts at all. There are some older decisions that actually suggest that side effects from vaccines aren't compensable. Uh, I'll tell you, I'm not buying uh, those decisions, at least as you bring them up to our current times. I think if an employer gives an order and requires employees to do anything, get vaccinated, whatever it might be, and the employee is injured doing that thing, I think that's going to be a workers' compensation injury. But no doubt there will be litigation over all of that. Thank you for sitting through that long dissertation on vaccination. Uh, the only relief that you should have is that it could have been longer, right? I, I could talk about this at some great length. Please, please make sure that everybody around you who you think is in uh, the throes of a dilemma of whether or not they should get vaccinated to comply with an employer's mandatory vaccination rule. Please make sure they have a good understanding of the law. Feel free to replay for them what you have just heard. The last thing we want is for any employee in this country any police officer, firefighter, deputy sheriff, state trooper, corrections officer to lose his or her job because of misinformation about the law. So I think I've got time to get to a couple of cases uh, that do not involve uh, vaccination programs. Uh, the first it comes from Houston firefighters. Uh, you remember, if you're a longtime listener to this podcast, you'll remember uh, that in 2017, uh, the Houston firefighters simply got tired of waiting uh, for the city of Houston uh, to bring them to parity with Houston police. Once upon a time, there was parity between the wages paid Houston firefighters and Houston police. But over time, it slipped, and it slipped significantly uh, to the point where by 2017, firefighters were paid between 20 and 30% less than Houston police, and firefighters had not been able to negotiate a contract with the city for many years. I think the number was around seven years, but that's just in the back of my head. But it was definitely a long period of time. So in 2017, the firefighters gathered enough signatures to put on the ballot a city charter amendment for the city of Houston. And that charter amendment would have put into place pay parity between the Houston firefighters and Houston police. And the charter amendment was a model of simplicity. I love it when you see one-sentence charter amendments. That is so well done. And here's the sentence. The city of Houston shall compensate city firefighters in a manner and amount that is at least equal 
and comparable by rank and seniority with the compensation provided city police officers. That charter amendment passed. It may have passed rather substantially, uh, passed by an over 20% margin in the November 2018 election. And in that same month, the police officers union uh, sued the Firefighters Association and the city seeking to overturn the pay parity amendment. This puts the city in the odd position of being the defendant in the case where really it agrees with uh, the police union that the charter amendment uh, should be overturned. So why is the police union suing the firefighters uh, and the city? Why would the police be concerned about this pay parity uh, amendment? Well, the answer is pretty simple, isn't it? There's only one pot of money that the city of Houston has available for wage increases. If you give one group a 20 to 30% raise, that's less than money available potentially for the police officers. And also the police officers are looking down the road and they're thinking, and I know this because it was said out loud, they're thinking, well, this just means from now on, we're gonna have to bargain not just for ourselves, but also for the firefighters. Uh, and so that's why the police union sued. And of course, that led to frayed relationships, as you might ex expect, between the Firefighters Association and the police union. Uh, that all aside, uh, a trial court overturns the amendment and the Firefighters Association appeals to the Texas Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals just issued its decision. Before I tell you what the decision is, I'm gonna tease you a little bit here. I need to explain to you uh, how it is the city of Houston bargains. And I also have to explain to you a concept that is known as preemption. Okay, first of all, how does the city bargain? There's no statewide collective bargaining law in Texas. There is something called the Fire and Police Employee Relations Act, I'll call it the Employee Relations Act, that allows individual jurisdictions to adopt a, the act, to adopt the collective bargaining structure provided by the Employee Relations Act. And a few cities have, uh, in fact, adopted the Employee Relations Act. Usually it's done uh, through the initiative process where the police union or the firefighters union will get enough signatures to put something on the ballot and then the local jurisdiction will adopt the act. Uh, and the city of Houston adopted the act in 2003. And that's the basis for the negotiations between the firefighters association and the city and the police union in the city. There's one sentence in the act that is very important. It says that firefighters' compensation and conditions of employment shall be substantially equal to and based on comparable private sector employment. That's kind of interesting, right? We don't have a lot of private sector firefighters. There's an analogous statute for the police. We don't have many private sector police, but that's the way the statute is written. Okay, so that's the bargaining background. Now, let me give you uh, just a few words about what preemption is. State statutes, state constitutional provisions can preempt, that's the word, 
local ordinances and charter provisions that are inconsistent with the state law. Uh, we saw a lot of this happening when collective bargaining laws were first being adopted around the country, uh, many of them in the 1970s and into the 1980s, uh, where you'd have local statutes that provided for a collective bargaining system, and then the state legislature jumps in and passes a mandatory collective bargaining law, uh, which is effective. Uh, and you would see state Supreme Courts holding that the state passage of the state law, because there's an overriding state interest in stable uh, public sector labor relations, that the state law preempts the ability of a local jurisdiction to act in a fashion inconsistently with the state mandate. And that's what the trial court judge ruled in Texas, uh, uh, ruled that the State Employee Relations Act preempted uh, the city of Houston adopting this pay parity agreement. Uh, and the Texas Court of Appeals was having none of that argument, said, nope, there's no preemption here. Uh, and uh, the, we agree, said the court, you, you can read the Employee Relations Act. It contains an express preemption provision, but the language of that provision is very important. It preempts all contrary local ordinances. And in fact, there's even a preemption clause in the Texas Constitution, the court says. And the language of that is important as well. It says that no charter or ordinance can contain any provision inconsistent with the Constitution of the state or the laws enacted by the state legislature, like the Employee Relations Act. Those two words, contrary local ordinances, inconsistent local ordinances, the court says, is very important because we don't think this pay parity agreement is contrary or inconsistent with the Employee Relations Act. Let me read to you three sentences or four sentences in the court's opinion. By establishing compensation that is at least equal and comparable to that provided to police officers, the pay parity amendment establishes a minimum compensation statute. This standard may be construed as ancillary to and in harmony with those set forth in the Employee Relations Act. The standards in the Employee Relations Act further determine firefighter compensation to the, to the extent it exceeds this floor. This interpretation concerning the pay parity amendment isn't foreclosed by the Employee Relations Act. The Employee Relations Act does not prohibit the establishment of a compensation floor, nor does it bar the consideration of other factors to determine firefighter compensation. Bottom line, says the court, uh, we can construe this amendment in such a fashion that both the Employee Relations Act and the Pay Parity Amendment are congruent. They are consistent with each other. They establish separate floors. And to the extent one establishes a floor that is greater than the other, 
well, then the employer is going to have to comply with it. And it will not be in violation of that other floor because these are floors. Well, the Court of Appeals decision was a two-to-one decision. And given the amount of money that is involved in this dispute, and given the hard, hard feelings uh, in Houston, particularly between the city and the Firefighters Association, uh, you can anticipate there will be an appeal to the Texas Supreme Court. Whether the court will take the case, uh, nobody knows. Incidentally, uh, while we're talking about the Houston firefighters, this is not a case we're going to summarize for the newsletter, but many of you may have seen that the city fired, or in uh, Texas lingo, uh, put on indefinite unpaid suspension, Marty Langton, who was the longtime, or is, has been, the longtime president of the Houston Firefighters Association. Uh, that case uh, went to a hearing, and the city has now been ordered to reinstate Marty with full back pay. Uh, and I've got to say, as somebody who knows and likes Marty, uh, he was a speaker for us on several occasions at LRIS. Uh, good on Marty. Uh, glad to see you back on the job. The last case I want to talk about doesn't, re doesn't really involve an employer-employee dispute or employer a union suit, but it's a, uh, an amazing decision out of a federal trial court involving a union president. Uh, and as you will hear me say, I think this is a decision that is deeply disturbing uh, and is even more wrong than it is disturbing. Let's talk about it. Uh, this is a lawsuit against Robert Kroll, who is the president of the Police Officers Federation of Minneapolis. Um, and the heart of the lawsuit seems to be that Kroll did too good a job in negotiating on behalf of the Federation with Minneapolis elected officials. The lawsuit was filed by a group of journalists and photographers and other members of the press who were present uh, in the protests following the killing of George Floyd. Uh, the journalist claimed that law enforcement officers and political leaders in the state of Minnesota and the city of Minneapolis conspired to deprive them of their civil rights. Who did they conspire with? Kroll. How? They said Kroll implicitly and explicitly directed officers to use unnecessary force on the citizens of Minneapolis quote, by thwarting discipline and enabling a culture and practice of immunity from sanction for constitutional violations. Kroll files a motion to dismiss the conspiracy claim against him, and uh, understandably, his motion to dismiss is based on the fact that this civil rights lawsuit um, it, it, cannot be brought against a private actor such as himself. The judge disagreed and has allowed the conspiracy claim to proceed. Uh, and here's what the judge has to say. The complaint details many examples of Kroll's actions and statements that, if true, 
demonstrate his ability to influence the Metropol or Minneapolis Police Department. For example, the journalists allege that in public statements, Kroll's policy-making power has been referenced by multiple city officials, including a former assistant police chief, a mayor, uh, or a couple of mayors, and a police chief. The journalists also allege that Kroll's influence over the police department is well known and that the police chief has stated publicly that the Federation has more influence over the police culture than any police chief ever could. Bottom line, the judge is allowing a civil rights lawsuit to proceed against a police union president, and by extension, of course, the police union, for negotiating too good a contract and for standing up to, for his members to protect their jobs. It is astonishing to me to think that that can be the basis for civil litigation and, quite frankly, frightening. Uh, it'll be interesting to follow this case and to see whether or not the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, Minnesota is in the Eighth Circuit, I think they're in the Eighth Circuit, yeah, I'm sure they are, uh, it'll be interesting to see if the uh, court intervenes uh, in the case. If it does not intervene, that means that uh, Kroll and the Police Federation are going to have to hire attorneys uh, to defend against this lawsuit. Pretty amazing case, something that I have never seen any sign of in any of uh, the case books. Well, with that, that's the end of this podcast. Hopefully, when we get to our October 1st Thursday, I won't still be talking to you about mandatory vaccination programs. I think that may be a faint hope, but hopefully I won't be talking to you and we can be discussing um, less emotionally fraught issues. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, and in particular, thanks for spreading the word, if you will, on the legal issues surrounding mandatory vaccination programs. Uh, we really don't want to see anybody lose their jobs over this. And with that, this is Will Aitchison signing off.